Good morning. I want to take you back to February of 2000. It was my second semester uh, at Asbury Theological Seminary, and I took a course on evangelism from a professor named Robert Tuttle. Now, Bob Tuttle is an interesting guy, to say the least. I'm going to describe him to you in this way. I want you to imagine a triangle with Robert Duvall sort of right here, the actor, and Billy Graham, the great evangelist here, and Clint Eastwood right here. And Robert, uh, Bob Tuttle was right in the middle of that space. That's really his character in so many ways. He, he walked to the front of McKenna Chapel on the Wilmore campus, a big space, relatively speaking, about like this. He had a black turtleneck sweater on, gold-rimmed glasses, Carolina blue eyes, thinning snow-white hair, and a twinkle in those eyes that made me a little nervous. And he went to the front of the class, and 70 people or so gathered. We have our, our course schedules in front of us, and we're looking at them, and he says, you, you see this is a course on evangelism. What you need to know is that I am not here to teach you how to evangelize. I am here to teach you, or I'm here to motivate you to want to do it. And he had my attention at that moment. So we began walking through the course schedule, and we got to the assignments, which is really what all students are most interested in. What do we got to do? And he said, over the course of this semester, I'm going to give you three assignments. You're going to hate me for these, and then you're going to thank me for them. And the assignment will be the same in each case. I want you to go into the world and have an evangelistic conversation with a complete stranger. And he just grinned. And you could feel the tension rising in that, that chapel. And then he said this. He said, I feel your nervous tension, and let me encourage you. The Holy Spirit has far more invested in your evangelism than you do. Don't sweat this. Instead, pray for an unmistakable opportunity to share your faith with a stranger. He said it two or three times. That's recurrence, right, friends? So we go on and we have our classes and a few weeks pass by and I realize on a Thursday afternoon as I'm leaving that building to head to my car in the parking lot, which at that time was a 1991 Ford Escort Pony, which if you know anything about Ford cars, a pony is the cheapest model you can get. No AC, five-speed, went through four radios, 230,000 miles, still got 39 miles to the gallon when I gave it away. I got into that car at about five in the evening, that cool, gray February day, and I headed for the Indianapolis area where I lived because I was commuting back and forth to Asbury Seminary in central Kentucky. And as I left the parking lot in the aforementioned 1991 Ford Escort Pony, I realized that the first assignment was to be due that next Tuesday. 
and beads of sweat broke out on my forehead, and I began to clutch the steering wheel, showing my white knuckles, and my heart began to race. And I thought, oh no, what am I going to do? I've got to have a, an evangelistic conversation with a complete stranger between now and Tuesday. And then I heard the voice of Bob Tuttle remind me, Brad, don't sweat this. The Holy Spirit has far more invested in your evangelism than you do Pray for an unmistakable opportunity to share your faith with a stranger. So I was emboldened by that. And I drove with confidence to Louisville, Kentucky, which is where I would cross the Ohio River to head on north up to Indianapolis. And typically, at that time of day, as I was approaching Louisville from the east, I would get to about exit 17, on Interstate 64, that's the Blankenbaker Parkway, and I would assess traffic. And if traffic was backing up, I'd get off and have dinner. But if traffic was flowing, I'd push on through to the other side and have dinner in, in Indiana. Well, that particular evening, traffic was backing up, so I decided I'd pull off and uh, go grab uh, some items off the Wendy's 99-cent Super Value menu. And I parked the car, I got out of it, I looked up and I realized I wasn't at Wendy's. How did I do that? I was at Waffle House. Can I just get an amen for Waffle House? I was at a Waffle House and I thought, well, that's not a problem. I'll just go in and have breakfast for dinner. I, I like that. It's no mama's, let me tell you that. So I went in, just sort of keeping in mind that this assignment is coming up, pray for an unmistakable opportunity, don't sweat it, Holy Spirit, all that. I walked in, and the first sense I had was that there was really nobody in that restaurant, except for a, what was obviously a homeless guy just inside the door at, in a booth. And so I walked in and turned to go to the counter to sit down, and as I went in and turned, he made eye contact with me, and without me saying a word, he said, thank you for your kindness. Uh, dude, that's weird. And I wasn't sure what to make of it, so I went and I sat down at the counter, and I ordered dinner, and I ate it. And uh, I began eavesdropping, I mean, listening attentively, to the conversation this homeless guy was having with the wait staff there. And I learned that he was hitchhiking. In fact, he had left South Florida, this is February, he had left South Florida four days earlier on foot and was headed to South Dakota. He spent the night before, which had rained, under an overpass. He was tired, hungry, and he stunk. And the wait staff was giving him food and coffee. So I finished my meal. I got up, pulled out my wallet, paid my bill, decided to go wash my hands. And as I walked by him, really trying to avoid the initial awkwardness of our exchange, he said to me again, thank you for your kindness. Now, this is starting to freak me out. So I went into the bathroom and I washed my hands and my knees were shaking I remember this vividly, and I came back out, and I went to his table, and I said, Brother, 
I'm not going to South Dakota, but I am headed north. You're welcome to ride with me as far as I'm going. And he said, that would be fabulous. So when he got and off we went, we spent two hours in conversation. And before he got out, my hand was on his knee and we were praying together. And I could not believe it. And I went home and I wrote my paper. I turned it in and I got an A. Right? So this story proves that if you want something, pray for it and God will give it to you. Maybe. I want to tell you this. I've tried to evangelize before. I've, I shared this in a conversation earlier this weekend with some of you. And my intentional, deliberate, willful evangelism has absolutely done more harm than good. I've put people off. I've burned bridges. I've created distance between me and people and me and Jesus. Now, don't hear me say we're not called to evangelize. That's not what I'm saying. But note what I said. My deliberate, intentional, willful evangelism has done, has done more harm than good. So for several recent years, I've pastored a very small church in rural Kentucky. The whole church property would fit in this room. It's a really small church, and I've done it on a part-time basis. But within a few months of taking that pastoral appointment, I, I felt myself with some angst. You know what I mean by angst? Sort of that space between um, anxiety and anger, right? Because I really had ideas for the church, and those ideas weren't happening. Terry, you've never had this experience in your life, have you? And I preached my sermon, and it was a pretty whatever sermon. And I remember giving the benediction, and I sort of stepped down away from the pulpit and down the one step, and it was as if I heard a voice. I didn't hear a voice, but it was like hearing a voice that said, Brad, I really appreciate all that you're doing for me, but why don't you slow down and let me catch up? And that hit me right between the eyes. And I thought, what am I doing here? So I went home, we went to lunch, excuse me, went to lunch, came home, took a little rest, and I remember just spending that afternoon with my boys. I've got four teenage boys. We played and we laughed and we just chilled out. And that evening after dinner at home was just incredibly filled with peace. And I woke up that morning with a, the next morning with a contentment and a sense that, you know what? This idea of slowing down and letting God catch up might not only be a good idea, it might be more satisfying. That sort of changed the way I approached my ministry from that point forward. Now, this is going to seem like an incredibly random thought, but I'm going to make a connection here. I love Asbury Seminary, and I'm going to paraphrase Bob Tuttle here. 
Asbury Seminary is my theological mother. I have been conceived in her womb. So thankful for Asbury Seminary, but there's one thing about Asbury Seminary I don't like. And you know what it is? The sidewalks. I do not like the sidewalks at Asbury Seminary. Now, Luke will recall some of this conversation. But this has been on my mind lately. And years ago, a friend of mine said, yeah, these sidewalks, nothing takes you where you want to go. You got you to go a roundabout way to get there. You look at the campus from Google satellite view, and it's really attractive and artistic. But it doesn't work so well. My friend years ago said what they should have done before they built the first sidewalk is they should have sown grass everywhere. Let it grow and have people walk on the grass for three weeks and where the paths are, build sidewalks. Man, that's a dose of wisdom, is it not? But what do we tend to do? We tend to build sidewalks where we want them intentionally, deliberately, and willfully. I want us to look at this passage uh, that was read earlier, Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I'm just mean to tell you, I've been thinking about this passage for a very long time. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, there's that word. What's that mean? Check this out, because what I'm about to say matters. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who shall prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What's that have to do with sidewalks? Well, when I was thinking about this, I actually gave the sermon a title, but what's the point of that? Thinking about the, um, who sings Life is a Highway? Rascal Flatts. I was thinking about that song, and particularly the scene in the movie from uh, the movie Cars, the Pixar movie Cars, when the sun's setting and they're leaving the raceway, hitting the road. That's just such, and that song's playing. Isn't that just a great scene? I love that. Life is a highway. I want to ride it all night long. Well, we sort of live like that, right? We just want to get into road gear, get over in the hammer lane and drop it, right? And just go where we want to be intentionally, willfully, and deliberately. But what if life is actually a sidewalk, a path that has already been prepared before us by someone other than us? Now, now take this imagery, preparing a highway in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance leading to the forgiveness of sins. Now, here's what happens. We see that. We see words like confession and repentance. 
and baptism and forgiveness. We see these words and we take our understanding of those words and we place them onto the text of Scripture, do we not? But here's my question. What did this mean back then? How would they have heard this? How would, the, all, how would all of the Judeans and all of the Jerusalemites who came out for this baptism, how would they have understood the word baptize when it was announced that John the baptizer was out there baptizing? Well, let me just tell you this, based on my research, and it's limited and, and, and provisional, but the sense that I have is prior to this moment in history, no one ever baptized anybody according to the patterns that we understand baptizing. It doesn't happen really anywhere that I can find. With maybe some very minor exceptions, Craig Keener's done a little work on this. But it's really, really minor. What's really going on here? How would people have understood someone coming in the highway and the call to prepare, I'm sorry, someone coming in the wilderness and the call to prepare a way for that someone? Well, I want to take you back to, I believe it was 1991 in the first Gulf War. Is that the right time, timing? 91? How many of you remember watching the television broadcasts of the updates every night of the progress of the war? Do you remember that? I do. And I remember General Colin Powell giving his reports and his updates talking about their efforts to, quote, condition the battlefield. Condition the battlefield. So, you know, the, 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 the Allied forces of Operation Desert Storm would assemble, you know, where, wherever it was, and they had to get to Baghdad, but there's a wilderness between the port and the city. And so what they had to do is they literally had to build highways to get their equipment there to, to fight the war. And you think, well, isn't that interesting? Well, it really shouldn't be because people have been doing that for millennia. So in your library here at Irving Church, on one wall, there's this fabulous painting of a map of the, of the ancient world. Pay attention to those maps because those maps matter. What you'll notice is that the promised land, the holy land, the land of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Israel is located in a very strategic location. It is valuable real estate because... It is a land bridge between three continents. Now, I'm going to try to do this in, in Orient. This way is Europe, this way is Africa, and this way is Asia. If you control Palestine, Canaan, Israel, you can control the world. And so it was in constant turmoil by various empires for hundreds and hundreds hundreds and even thousands of years because of its political and military significance. These people lived under the shadow of warfare like we live under the shadow of social media. It permeated every aspect of their being. And so that raises the question, in light of that reality, how would they have heard 
understood and received these words. Well, here's what I want to suggest. These words may not have meant to them what we make them mean for us today. You with me? If we read within the context of that world, we might hear something like this. Behold, I'm sending my messenger, my emissary, my forward uh, soldier to prepare a way for you to condition the battlefield as a voice in the wilderness crying, prepare for the way of the advancing army and make straight those highways to deliver the weapons of assault. The siege works, the battering rams, the catapults, all of the things needed to conduct siege warfare on, on, a, on a city. Typically on a, on, a, on a bluff, on a cliff, on a mountain, with a giant wall to protect it. And then you get this, and, his, and, and John the baptizer thus appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance leading to the forgiveness of sins. If you were to be given the opportunity to look at those words as they were used in the context of the first century ancient Near East, you would find that they tended to have particular meanings. Now, I'm speculating here a little bit, and I might be wrong on this. But the sense that I have is that the word sin could certainly be a religious problem, right? A violation against God's will. But it is also used in the literature of that time for crimes against state, for treason, in fact. The word repentance is often used in the original language as a word for surrender. The word forgiveness in the original sense is often used as a word for pardon. And here's what's really interesting to me. The word baptize almost always means to overwhelm something, to consume it, to envelop it to the destruction of that thing. There are reports in the ancient literature of ships that are sunk. And the the language reports in the original Greek that the ship was enveloped by the water. It was baptized by the water. Isn't that interesting? There are accounts of, of young men ganging up against another young man and drowning him in a pool of water. And what it says is they baptized him to death. They drowned him. There are reports of the city of Jerusalem being sort of overrun by enemy forces when it was conquered. And the description by Josephus, is, an ancient historian, is that the city was overwhelmed by the forces. It was baptized by the enemy. And the ancient first century Jewish philosopher and apologist, Philo, talks about alcohol, liquor, being a device that can overwhelm one's mind and deprive it of reason so that a person who drinks excessively becomes baptized 
by the alcohol to the point that they become foolish. This is how this word is used collaterally. And we see it appear here. So my question is, is the way we read this today consistent with the way they would have heard it back then? I'm almost thinking that Mark is drawing on the language of the day. What words do we use? Um, Is Nick in here? Is Nick standing in here, sitting in here? Nick was wearing a t-shirt yesterday that was hilarious. Where is he? Nick, what what did your shirt say yesterday? The first man ever to download data to a tablet from the cloud. Isn't that great? Think about those words. These words are all stock in our, vo- in our vocabulary these days, right? And they have certain meanings that have changed over time. But what do these words mean back then? What if it meant something like this? What if Mark is painting a picture of a battle? And maybe a battle that's not physical, but spiritual. You with me? John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism, a voluntary destruction. Right? A voluntary destruction of surrender leading to pardon for crimes against God. I think that would have sat with their ears, or would, have, would have landed in their ears in ways that they would have understood and responded to. Now, what does that mean? We're to go out and drown people? Absolutely not. Of course not. But I think it makes us think about baptism in a way that's more than simply a rite of initiation or a special moment or something that's symbolic. I think when we come to baptism, we come to baptism, I surrender all. We sing, do you all sing that song? Do we really? I mean, really? Do we surrender surrender all to Jesus? I think what we tend to do is we sort of take Jesus and we put him in one pocket and we put our vacation in another pocket and we put our car in a pocket and we put our promotion in a pocket and we put our boyfriend in a pocket and we just go through life. I got Jesus, I'm good. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus doesn't want us to have a vacation or a car or a job or a girlfriend or a boyfriend. I'm not suggesting that. But what I am suggesting that there has to be a primary allegiance. And that is not just to the person of Jesus, but to the will of Jesus. For years, Becky's left, good. Uh, good. I'm glad Becky left. Because I don't want her. Oh, no, there she Oh, she's You're going to hear it again, Becky. Terry, you're going to hear it again. Luke, you're going to hear it again. My apologies. You you are responsible. I'm pointing my finger at you. You're responsible for what's about to happen. My life before my wife was not anything I am in any way proud of. 
And it got so ugly late in life, in about age 30 or 31, that I said, I'm done dating. I'm not done with girls, Jonathan. I'm done with dating. Let's just, this is being streamed. I want to get this established in fact here. And I just happened to meet this young youth pastor who lived two hours away at, at a youth event. And we became friends. And in a very short time, we became more than friends. We, we fell in love. And it was like falling off a log. It was the easiest thing I've ever done in my life. I had tried to make so many relationships work, willfully, intentionally, deliberately. I did more harm than good to me and them and to Christina in the process. Thankfully, she's gracious. Well, the light began to go on when I realized that I no longer wanted to vacation with my friend Walter, who I always would choose over my girlfriends to vacation with. And I said, I want to go on vacation with Christina. And we began spending more and more time together. And I would go to Madison, Indiana, two hours away, and visit her for a day. And then she would come to the Indianapolis area where I was, and she'd visit for the day. And I was in the process of buying a condo and trying to furnish it. And I needed cookware. And my buddy Walter said, you need to buy Calphalon. I've done the work. This is what you want. So we go, Christine and I, spending our day looking Calphalon. That stuff's expensive. I had no idea. And so we go to the Castleton Square Mall on the northeast corner of Indianapolis one afternoon to look for cookware. <clears throat> and I'm asking her, what, what do you think? What would you get? What do you know? She said, I don't know anything about this. I don't care. You do whatever you want. We're walking into the door of the J.C. Penney at Castleton Square Mall, and I said, Christina, what do you think I should do? I'm tired of shopping. Let's wrap this up. She said, Brad, I don't, you'd get what you want. And I opened the door. She starts to go in. I grab her by the arm. I pull her back out. I said, Christina, and I held her by the shoulders. And I looked her in the eye. I said, you don't understand, Christina. I don't want to buy this for me. I want this to be our cookware. Will you marry me? And what did I say? Her eyes got as big as dinner platters. And she gasped. <gasps> She said, of course. And we sat down on a little concrete bench outside J.C. Penney and went into cardiac arrest together. It's like falling off a log. I felt like the Lord had taken me right to an edge and just, boom, pushed me right off it into something grand and glorious. I didn't see that coming but I'm so glad it did. He surprised me. God has quite the imagination. Will you accept that, Irving Church? God has quite the imagination. I don't remember the character, but I know he, he's like Luke. He can run really fast in the Avengers. 
What, what's, is he sort of like this European guy? Does anybody know? I can't remember. He could run really fast. And, and the line that my boys and I took away from that movie when we saw it in the theaters was, he, he, would, he would do something extraordinary because he could run so fast. He would, he would say, I bet you did not see that coming. I can hear God saying that. I bet you didn't see that coming. Well, I started off with a journey back in time to February of 2000 in that class with Bob Tuttle, right? There were three assignments. Turned the first one in and I got an A. A month later, on another Thursday afternoon, I leave McKenna Chapel. And I walk out to the 1991 Ford Escort Pony and I get in my car to drive home. And as I'm leaving, it occurs to me that the second case study would be due the following Tuesday. And beads of perspiration <laughs> broke out on my forehead. And I clutched the steering wheel of the car and my white knuckles and my heart and the whole thing all over again. And I heard the voice of Bob Tuttle in my ear saying, Brad, the Holy Spirit has far more invested in your ministry and evangelism than you do. Don't sweat it. Pray for an unmistakable opportunity to share your faith with the stranger. And bold I approached the throne. I drove that car like a madman, thinking I'm going to go back to that Waffle House because it was a good fishing hole and it produced a lunker the last time. So I drove right there, willfully, deliberately, intentionally, and I marched in there, and I noticed the place was full of people. Hot dog, it's a target-rich environment. And I sat down at the counter where I'd sat before, and I resolved to sit there until something happened. And so I ordered a meal, and I ate it. And I ordered coffee, and I drank it. And an hour passed, and nothing happened. So, I ordered another meal, and I ate it, and I ordered more coffee, and I drank it, and, and another hour passed. <laughs> I began to feel like we did yesterday when we left that fabulous Mexican restaurant. Ooh, that was great, but I'm not sure that was such a good idea to eat all of that. And nothing happened. Well, hmm, what do I do now? So I thought, well, maybe the Lord has something else in mind somewhere along this coming weekend. So I stood up and I reached into my pocket and I pulled out my wallet to pay my bill. And as I did, a guy who had apparently been in the restaurant the entire time got up and he came over and he sat down right beside me at the counter. And so I just sort of sat back down in my seat. And I began to eavesdrop, I mean, listen attentively to his conversation with the wait staff. And what I learned was that he was a factory worker at a nearby facility, and he would often come to the Waffle House for dinner before going home because he was going to go home to an empty house and he just wanted to be around people. So he and I just sort of began to talk, and um, I said, so, so, so what's your story, Bill? 
he said, well, I work at this factory, and I'm, I'm in middle management, and I find that the people below me don't respect me, and the people above me don't value me. He said, I've been married twice, and I'm, I've been divorced twice, and I've raised two sets of kids, and none of those appreciate any of that. And he said, I used to go to church, but I find it hard to be a Christian these days. My heart sort of broke for him. And then he said, what about you? He said, well, or I said, well, um, I'm driving to Wilmore, Kentucky every week for seminary studies. He says, oh, you're a preacher. I said, well, I'm actually a youth pastor. I'm a Josh Smith, right? This is what I do. And I've got to say, hearing you talk really somehow connected with me because I sometimes feel like it's hard to be a Christian as well. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, I drive three and a half hours every week to go take classes and I leave my youth group behind and I'm not there for them and I don't feel like a very good youth pastor. And I'm a new husband and I'm away from my, we, my wife uh, three days a week. I don't feel like a very good first-year husband. And on top of that, my dad just died and I don't feel like I'm a very good son to my mom. I get it. He kind of nodded his head and shrugged, and it felt like sort of a hopeless moment right then. But then a thought occurred to me. Where I was doing ministry, there was another youth pastor in town who, at a a community-wide retreat one time, told a little story to the kids that stuck with me. Now, he told it really well. But I said to Bill, as we're sitting at that Waffle House counter, I said, Bill, my friend Scott, who's a kind of a colleague there, told a story that encouraged me, and I wonder if it might encourage you. I'd like to tell it to you, but I don't want to offend you because it's a story for kids. He said, let's have it, brother. I said, well, I don't know that I remember all the details, but it goes sort of like this. He said, a, a little boy was in his backyard one time playing in his sandbox, and he discovered in the bottom of the sandbox a big rock, And he wasn't able to move the rock out of the sandbox to play like he wanted to. So he went into the house and he asked his dad, he said, "Uh, Dad, did you know there's a rock in that sandbox? And the dad said, well, no, I didn't. And the boy said, well, I tried to move it, but I couldn't. And the dad said, son, did, did you use your strength? The boy said, well, maybe not. So the boy goes back out and he grabs that rock and he pulls really hard this time, and it's, it's not moving. So he goes back into the house. He says, Dad, you remember that rock we were talking about? Yes, son. Well, it still won't move. Son, did you use all your strength? The boy thought about it, and he said, well, apparently not. And so he goes back out, willfully, intentionally, deliberately, right? And he digs a trench around the rock with his Tonka toys and trucks. And he goes to the back of the garage and he grabs the garden hose and he brings it over and he starts irrigating that trench. And he finds a piece of two before and a piece of cinder block and he brings them over and he creates a lever. And he thinks that with that lever and the irrigation and the, 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 the removal and excavation of the sand, he can get that rock out of there. So he wedges that board onto that cinder block under the 
rock and he starts pulling and pulling and pulling and nothing's moving and his arms are starting to shake and the sun's giving him a sunburn and he's sweating and the salt's getting in his eyes and he's got splinters in his hands and in the last ditch effort to get this thing to move he used all of his strength and the board slipped and he fell and the board hit him right on the head and he goes into the house crying dad 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 what's wrong son oh you remember that rock yes son well, I got to board the hose and it, and it hit me on the head. Wow. Son, son, son. It'll be okay. I want you to go in the living room and wait for me. I'll be right back. So the dad goes out the back door into the backyard. You have to go through the kitchen to get there. And the little boy leaves the living room and he comes back into the kitchen. He jumps up on the sink. And he looks out the kitchen window where his mom would do dishes into the backyard. And he sees his dad with seemingly no effort at all reach over and grab that rock, pick it up, and set it off to the side. And the dad comes back into the house. The boy jumps off the sink, runs into the living room, and waits for his dad. The dad comes in, scoops up the boy, and says, son... Son wipes the crocodile tears off his cheeks, puts him on his lap as they sit down together in the big comfy dad chair. And he says, son, I love you so much. But I need to tell you something right now. You've made a mistake. And your mistake was this. When, you, when I asked you if you had used all of your strength, you should have said no because you didn't ask me I am your strength. And I looked at Bill, and not sure how he was going to respond there at that Waffle House counter, and his eyes were as big as dinner platters. He stood up, he shook my hand, he said, Brother, thank you for that story, I want to talk to you some more. I said, I'll be here every night, every Thursday night, for the next four years. And I never saw him again. But I went home and I wrote my paper and I turned it in and I got an A. And Bob Tuttle wrote this on my paper. I have it. I was going to bring it and I forgot it. He said, I like this place, talking about the Waffle House, and he said, I like you. I was feeling great about myself. So the point, obviously, is if you want something, just pray for it and it'll happen. You don't let me get away with that? I hope not. I believe more and more that the Holy Spirit is at work in this world and in our lives and wants to be involved, wants to be our strength as we move through this life if we will just slow down and let Him catch up with us. And I, I'm living into this. And I'm seeing the fruitfulness of it. I'm not doing it perfectly, but I'm gaining confidence to the point that I'm willing to consider doing some crazy stuff. Because I trust Him. Why? Because His steadfast love endures forever. He is able when he comes through the highway or through the wilderness, it's not Assyria, it's not Babylon, it's not Iraq, and it's not the allied forces. It's the Lord of heaven and earth 
And if he can form mountains and craft seas, he can help me. His job is not to get on board with my will. My job is to get on board with his. So it's really not about, not about me. I think Toby Keith is wrong. We shouldn't be talking about me. We should be talking about him. What if we awoke every day with an expectation that the Lord was going to surprise us? What if we put our feet on the floor each morning and the first thought was, Lord, what are you going to do that I didn't see coming? Do we have the imaginative capacity to make room for a God that big? Well, Brad, that's all fine and well, but how does this play out Monday morning? Well, Monday morning, some of you may have a decision to make about a job. What if you surrendered your position on that job to God and said, your will, not mine? What if when it came time to choose a spouse in the coming days, weeks, months, years, instead of saying, I think I can make this happen, we can make this work, you said, Lord, your will, not mine. What if we applied that kind of philosophy to the schools we choose to attend or send our kids and the classes we choose to take and the books that we choose to read? How about if we chose that line of thinking when we decide how much money to put in the offering plate or even what we're going to have for lunch? And I'm serious about this. Every decision we make could be an appeal to the Lord of heaven and earth for wisdom and guidance and strength. I say that about lunch because I have to decide about my lunch. I come from a long history of heart disease. My dad died unexpectedly in his sleep of a massive heart attack at age 54, five weeks before Christine and I got married. He was going to be my best man. His dad died at 49 of the same thing. My, my brother had angioplasty at 24. I have to think about what I have for lunch. Lord, what's your will when I step in front of the refrigerator and choose from the available options? Everything we do could be an appeal to the Lord of heaven and earth who is powerful. Why don't we give that to him? You know what? It might not just be a good idea. It might be more satisfying to slow down and let him catch up with us. Are you willing to surrender your life to him? Every area of it. If so, you might find yourself having a lot more fun in life. And I don't mean fun as in reckless pleasure. I mean joy, contentment, peace that passes understanding. These are the things Jesus came to offer. Will we receive those things on His terms? There's no negotiating here. The question is not, is he with us? For he is. The question is, are we with him? Amen? Amen.